A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Australian philosopher David Chalmers has been a lively contributor to debates on the nature of the mind and consciousness in recent years. The Irish Times caught up with him in Dublin this week to talk about his ongoing disagreements with the cognitive scientist Daniel Dennett. But before turning to that, I asked him about his theory of the extended mind, the idea that our minds encompass the environment around us. Chalmers first presented the idea in a paper with the philosopher Andy Clark in 1998, and here he explains it afresh. Well, the extended mind is the idea that roughly our mind extends outside our heads and outside outside our brains, and in particular that the tools we use sometimes become part of our minds. Maybe the paradigm case of this is the, uh, the mobile phone. We used to um, remember phone numbers with our biological brains, and, you know, 6, 4, 2, 5, 4, whatever. I mean, I don't know about you, but uh, I can't remember the last time I actually memorized a, uh, a phone number with my brain. Now we use our, uh, our phones to, uh, to uh, store them, and any time I need to call someone, I just, uh, there it is on my, on my phone. In effect, my mobile phone is serving as my memory. And exactly, it's playing exactly the same role that my biological brain was once doing. And you might say, well, this is just a, now it's just a tool. We don't need to remember anymore. Uh, the phone is somehow just serving as a memory bank that I access. But I think, you know, in a paper that Andy Clark and I wrote uh, maybe 15 years ago now, we suggested, in fact, there's complete parity with the case of the, uh, the biologi- of biological memory, and the phone really should be seen as quite literally a, cons- a component of one's mind. That, um, you know, I'm re- when I access my phone, I'm remembering the phone number in the same way as when I access my biological memory. And it should be regarded, in effect, in effect, as part of my knowledge store all along. So, in effect, the tools we use, once they're coupled to us in the right way, and they become part of our cognitive system and part of who we are. And I guess you can extend that then to new technology, and as technology advances all the time, in a sense, are our minds expanding all that time? Yeah, I think this is pretty well how it's going. In fact, when we first wrote this article in the mid-90s, you know, mobile phones weren't around in the, uh, in the same way, and our main example was a notebook. Uh, someone with Alzheimer's who wrote down a lot of uh, information in his notebook and looked it up. And, of course, what's happened since then is really mind extension has become enormously more ubiquitous due to... Uh, the use of things like mobile phones and ubiquitous use of the internet and so on. In fact, one of my colleagues uh, at New York University, Ned Block, likes to say, when you wrote the article, your thesis was false. But since then, it's become true uh, because of all this use of technology. As technology expands, though, the the human bit, as we we conventionally see it, does that not diminish over time? I mean, is there sort of a danger maybe we will lose sight of that uniqueness of the, of the, the human viewpoint? And I guess you, you might say, you know, ultimately, if, if technology keeps expanding, if we keep, keep expanding the mind into all these different fields, there's nothing really left that we can call our own. The way I think about it, there's always going to be a conscious human being at the core, and all this is doing the extension. So um, in, the, in these classic examples, then there's a brain at the core and a conscious person who can think and reflect. And the technology is really playing some of the roles that might be played, have previously been played by aspects of the unconscious mind or memory and so on, or storage units, or unconscious decision processes 
and so on. So they uh, extend the processes. There's always you left at the center, able to use your technology, use your reflection and your wisdom and your judgment. I suppose it's possible that you could end up just unreflectingly and unreflectively and unselfconsciously just deferring to your tools like the internet, just looking up something on Google and, and just you know, blindly trusting it. And then I suppose then you would be in, in danger of giving up your human agency. But I don't think that's a position that most of us are actually uh, actually in. We're prepared to use a bit of uh, judgment and uh, reflection and decision. And we'll sometimes defer to our technology and we'll sometimes make decisions under our own, completely under our own steam, but uh, informed by all this information. Now, I mean, maybe there's a trend towards people being less reflective and uh, less self-conscious about these things, but I'm not sure to what extent that would be driven by mind extension and just to what extent that would just be driven by uh, other trends in our culture. I mean, it relates very much to the whole question of consciousness, which is another issue that you've researched and spoken about a lot. Um, I mean, there's a lot of theories about human consciousness, where it comes from. Daniel Dennett, if you like, might stand in one uh, end of the spectrum. You think, though, maybe there's alternative theories. He would say consciousness maybe is an illusion, if that summarises it succinctly, but you feel maybe there's other explanations for consciousness. Yeah, well, I think um, most people acknowledge that there's really a pretty serious problem of consciousness and how we explain it. I mean, it's quite commonly regarded as the last great challenge for science in some ways, the thing that we don't understand. The basic problem is, you know, we're getting a pretty good grip from neuroscience and so on on explaining aspects of our behavior, our responses, the thing we do, walking, talking, um, and so on. But the problem of experience, of consciousness, then is the hard problem. Those we can call the, uh, the easy problems in a certain sense. The hard problem of consciousness is explaining why all that stuff that our brain does is accompanied by subjective experience, why it feels like something from the uh, from the inside. Uh, that seems to be a different kind of problem because you can explain all the stuff that we're doing, and there's still a question: well, why does it why does it feel like something? Why is somebody home? Then it takes the fairly extreme view that there's really nothing to explain here; it's just an illusion. We just need to explain our behavior. I mean, even among people who think of themselves as reductionists and materialists, that view has been pretty unpopular in recent years, you know, people like Steven Pinker and his book, How the Mind Works, which puts forward this beautiful reductionist vision in the last 20 pages or so, acknowledges quite explicitly, you know, there's this massive problem of consciousness that we don't yet have a, uh, have a grip on. You'll find people like Francis Crick and Christoph Koch in the neurosciences putting forward the reductionist program, acknowledging the same thing. So I think there's a dominant, you know, there's an attitude out there, this is a massive challenge, and there's a fair amount of agnosticism or frustration about what the best way is to, uh, to approach it. But my own view is out there um, on the other, is, on the, is in some ways on the other end of the spectrum from Dennett. My own view is it's actually a systematic reason to think that any purely physical explanation of consciousness is going to fail. Neuroscience is going to give us great explanations of the easy problems and the behaviors, but it's always going to take an extra ingredient somehow to get to, uh, to consciousness. So I've proposed we've got to ultimately regard consciousness as something like a fundamental element in nature and look for the fundamental principles, analogous to fundamental laws in physics, that connect consciousness to everything else. If it is a, a fundamental factor, a fundamental thing, consciousness, does that, what are the implications of that? Does it mean consciousness maybe exists after we're physically gone? Or, or where can consciousness be found ultimately? Yeah, so my own view is there's a very strong correlation between consciousness and physical Processes. So it's not as if consciousness can be disassociated from them in the way that someone who believes in a soul might go for. I think it looks like all the evidence, at least, is wherever you find consciousness, you find corresponding processes in something like a, a brain. And you affect the brain, you affect consciousness. So in that extent, to, in that sense, there are views which are certainly way out, much further out on the, on the spectrum than mine. But uh, the question then is, what is the status of that connection between consciousness and physical processes? Is consciousness just reducible? 
to the physical process, or is there something more like a uh, connection between two different things? So my view is there's a connection between, it's really a connection between two different things, but it's still a connection which can be studied by science, and ultimately there might be some kind of fundamental law that says when you have a physical process like so, then you get consciousness. I mean, in terms of the practical steps towards further understanding consciousness, do you think it's coming, the best hope, if you like, lies within neuroscience, within science more generally, mathematics, within uh, philosophy? How best to kind of approach or enter the problem of, of explaining or understanding consciousness? It's actually been an extremely rich area of the last 20 years or so, uh, with people approaching it from all these different areas, philosophy, neuroscience, psychology, mathematics, physics, spirituality you know, which is a big change from, say, 30 years ago when there was almost nothing on these topics. I just got back from the 20th anniversary Toward a Science of Consciousness conference held in Arizona. The first one was held 20 years ago and brought back and brought in people from all these fields. And one thing that's happened since then is that, you know, there really is this rich field with a lot of inter interaction uh, between the fields. I suppose the core ones are almost neuroscience, which basically gets the data about the brain, psychology, which is primarily studying behavior and the processes that, that generate it, and philosophy, which takes an integrative perspective um, on it all. It looks for the underlying foundational principles and sort of the, the big framework questions. And we've seen a lot, you know, really a big three-way interaction between those fields over the last couple of decades. So results will come from the neuroscience, and maybe we'll get something about a neural correlate of consciousness or something claimed about uh, some interesting neuropsychological disorder and from which sometimes scientists or other people want to draw big conclusions about consciousness. But then, you know, the conclusions, you can't just read the conclusions off the data. Data might just be some, some behavioral results or some brain measurement or some correlations. And the question, what does all that mean, actually, for the place of consciousness in nature? The moment, you know, scientists start drawing that conclusion, in effect, they're doing a bit of philosophy themselves. And that's fine. I'm not, you know, I'm not into drawing lines for turf wars. It's, I think it's great when scientists start doing philosophy. But at this point, I think there's also a role for the, uh, for the philosopher in assessing the reasoning and saying, okay, what really follows here? What have we explained by this framework and what haven't we explained? And in fact, we've seen a pretty nice interaction. One unusual theory uh, from science broadly is this idea that there is a, a factor, this notion of phi that might explain consciousness. Would you explain that to us? Yeah, so um, one of the nice things that's happened actually over the last 20 years is people starting to develop more and more general theories of consciousness in the science. I mean, to, to a large extent, the science is the science of correlations. You find a process in the brain, you say, well, this, this activity in this brain area seems to go along with consciousness, and it's just at a level of correlating this brain process with this kind of consciousness. But people are starting to think about more general connections, and one of the most intriguing ideas has been put forward by Giulio Tononi recently, the idea that consciousness goes along with the integration of information. He proposes a measure, a mathematical measure of information integration, which he calls phi, and then proposes that consciousness goes along with a high degree of phi. So low phi, low consciousness, high phi, high consciousness. And in effect, this is sort of a fundamental principle of, uh, around which you can, uh, you're supposed to be able to frame the science. And he claims, at least, this can integrate a whole lot of results from neuroscience, from computational theory, and so on. And it's quite, you know, it's quite intriguing for a, uh, for a philosopher. I mean, like many principles that come out of the science, it's somewhat philosophically neutral. You could view this as a reductionist principle. All there is to consciousness is the integration of information. Ah, now we've totally domesticated it. That's not Tononi's own view, on the other hand. He says, he takes the view, like mine, that consciousness is a, basically a fundamental irreducible element in nature, and this is the fundamental law on his view that governs it. So it's, it's a fundamental law of nature analogous to laws like law of gravity, that where you have high phi, then you have high consciousness, and then uh, you could use that to uh, 
develop perhaps a non-reductive or theory of consciousness that views consciousness as a, as a fundamental element. To some extent, again, the science there is philosophically neutral, but it's quite nice from the, uh, from the philosopher's point of view to see the scientists developing theories as broad and ambitious as that. I mean, almost certainly, as an empirical theory, it will end up ultimately being too simple and having to be revised and so on for complicated reasons. Phi is quite hard to measure. But uh, you know, at least we're getting to the point where the science and the philosophy are starting to really interact with each other quite a lot around the edges. Finally, being here in Trinity, I don't know whether you've reflected a bit on, on Berkeley's influence in this field. And uh, you know, one might even draw parallels. Your own kind of method is, has a certain echo in, in what he was doing in terms of describing consciousness from the, from the human first, if you like. Berkeley and views of a certain kind are actually making a bit of a, uh, a comeback recently, under, especially under the guise of uh, the panpsychist view, which is not exactly Berkeley's version of idealism, which is that maybe underlying the whole physical world is, uh, is a level of consciousness at the, at the fundamental level of matter. Maybe electrons are ultimately constituted by consciousness and, uh, and atoms and, uh, and molecules. It may sound like a way out idea, but it turns out there are some, you know, some ideas to take this quite seriously coming from both the science and the philosophy. Now for Berkeley, in a way he went for a version of that, but all that was ultimately constituted by God's mind. Now I think in the contemporary versions, God isn't playing so central a role, but take that Berkeleyan vision and subtract God, and maybe you've then got a philosophical idea which is actually being taken quite seriously in the contemporary science and philosophy. David Chalmers, thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.